Hi, everybody. I'm Moshe. I'm a very, very grateful member of Al-Anon Family Group. I always uh, begin any share, whether it's a 10-minute or a long share, the same way, and that's the way my first sponsor always started her share, which is what you hear today. It's going to be my experience and to hope and how I remember the events that has occurred in the past. And the significance of that is that I was so attached to my perception of reality that it created a lot of unhappiness for me. So reminding myself of that fact makes my life a lot easier. And the truth is, the way she used to say it is that if there is an accident in a corner of a street and five people view it and a police comes and takes a report, each person will have a different description of the same event. So it wasn't personal and I need to realize that the events that happen in my life, it's not personal when somebody else has a different recollection of what has occurred. Having said that, um, I also have to say that I'm a transplant many times over. <clears throat> I am not American by birth. I'm a naturalized citizen. English is not my first language, it's my second language. Uh, and I always have considered Al-Anon to be my third. I now have a fourth. I've been studying another language. But I have to say the significance of that is that um, one of the things that June used to tell me is that I would get so attached to one word in a sentence and it would just drive me crazy. And she would say, well, you don't even know what that word means. I want you to look it up in the dictionary. And I have to say, dictionary is my favorite non-approved Al-Anon literature. <laughs> and I still refer to it all the time, and it's by my bedside, and every once in a while when I'm too attached to a word that really, really annoys me, I still look up the meaning of that word. And the, the significance of that is that when we hear a word, Al-Anon word, detachment, in a dictionary, you will not find the Al-Anon meaning, meaning of that word. So it's really, really important for me to realize what truth is, what correct information is, and where can I find it. Um, that was just a background, my intro to Al-Anon rather quickly. Uh, my history is that I'm the youngest child in my family. I'm an army brat, uh, uh, and I was my dad's favorite. Uh, he's in heaven, but I believe I'm still his favorite. Um, <laughs> I, um, I have been a caretaker from my earliest recollection. I remember we had some kittens, and I would not move because I didn't want these kittens to move. And they were sleeping on my lap. And my legs fell asleep, but I wouldn't move because they were sleeping. And their sleep was more important <laughs> than my legs going numb. So, uh, you know, those are the things that I realized after doing my fourth, in, fourth step and looking at, at who I am. But those are also significant to realize at, at, at that early of an age, three or four, that's just my makeup. I haven't learned anything from anybody. That's just the essence of who I am. And that still holds true. I am a caregiver, and I can very easily become a caretaker in a heartbeat. Put anything in front of me that needs care, I'm on it. 
I know exactly what needs to be done. You don't even have to tell me. I can feel the temperature as I approach it when it's needed. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like intuitive on a crazy level. But <laughs> so um, I was raised in Middle East, uh, very, very family oriented, extremely family oriented. And with, with very different definition of what family and social gatherings mean. In my culture that I grew up in, party meant food, fest, dancing, loud interaction, no alcohol. I don't even recall ever having alcohol in my home when I was growing up. Now, that does not mean there was not alcoholism in my extended family. It just means it wasn't in my immediate family. I, I have grown to realize that I have uncles and cousins that really like their alcohol. But I have to say, probably my parents are both caretakers, my dad being uh, a more advanced. He had a doctorate versus my mom was had the diploma. You know, my, my dad was the main caretaker of the family. And we were very close. We have always been close, even though he's passed, I still feel him near me all the time. I still say and do things that it's like, oh, that was dad, that couldn't be me. It's just, I, I, he's always with me. And it's a good thing and it's a hard thing sometimes. Um, anyway, I came to the United States when I was 18 years old. And I had been in this country for, for a little while. Um, and I'm, we moved to Texas. I'm a recovering Texan. <laughs> yeah, that's a true statement. Uh, and uh, I was living with my uh, sister and my brother-in-law because my, in my culture, it was not acceptable for my parents. They would not have allowed me to stay behind at the age 18 uh, without them. So my sister and my brother-in-law um, asked my parents, to let me stay behind because of the circumstances were not favorable and the region I was horrible, <laughs> far, far away from. So anyway, I stayed in the United States. I was living with my brother, uh, my brother-in-law and my sister and uh, his work took him back to Texas. He was a Texan. And uh, we got um, this, uh, he, they got this home and I, was, I would stay home with my niece and um, make a long story short, I made friends with the lady across the street. My sister would go to work and I was home with the baby, which is 32 now. That's aging me, isn't it? <laughs> Oops, add it up. So um, I became friends with the lady across the street and she was older. I've always connected with older people than myself. Maybe it's the cultural difference because of the way I was raised versus the people that are my age or in the U.S. I, my friends are way younger, way older. I hardly have any friends my own age. I don't know why that is, but it's just the way it is. So we became friends and they had a ranch and she says, you know, we're, we're going to be leaving town this weekend and my son needs to go to work. I said, do you mind giving him a ride to work? You know, he, he doesn't have a car. I said, oh, no problem. My pleasure. So I became friends with the mom and I became friends with the younger brother. And before I knew it, the middle brother moved back home. <laughs> and he was it. <laughs> and I remember I told a girlfriend of mine in the neighborhood, that guy that jogs. I would marry him. We haven't even been introduced yet. <laughs> My ex-husband does not know this to this day. 
women can keep secrets when it serves. So anyway, <laughs> so the younger brother introduced me to the older brother, and I was in love. I mean, I was in love seeing him talk. I don't know. It's just, it clicked. It fit. It was the perfect fit. Everything he did was perfect. He knew the country I was from. He knew the currency. He knew the history. He was from Texas. Abnormal. <laughs> really abnormal. And I thought, oh my God, a smart guy. He's smart. He's good looking and smart. What else could I ask for? And I have to tell you, better than looks to me is a clever, smart brain. It's just the sexiest thing on earth. I'm just a goner. Give me a smart guy, I'm a goner. I was a goner. <laughs> so um, I also have learned within my culture that control does not work overtly when you're a woman. Control works really well. If you do it in a sly way. You have to be cunning and you have to be clever and you have to be patient and find that right moment to present what you want in the life that the other person would be accepting of that suggestion. So um, I waited a long time before I told my parents that I wanted to marry the person that I believed to be the love of my life. So I kind of coordinated between the two. I kind of would tell him half the story the way it would be acceptable to me. would tell half the story the way it would be acceptable to my parents. So there wouldn't be a World War III and people wouldn't be killed in the midst of things. My parents were not happy that I was marrying. Um, I was the last to marry and uh, out of my, um, not just my um, culture, but out of my faith. So I was breaking all the rules. And, and this is the way I told my dad. I said, Dad, I'm in love. And uh, I want to get married. And it's either him or no one. And I would really like your consent. Now, that's the way to present to your dad, isn't it? <laughs> and so he, poor guy, my dad, he was, an, he's a, he was a soldier, but in, in his heart, he was a soft heart. And he persuaded my mom. And I knew I couldn't go to my mom. You know, kids know. Kids are so smart. They know how to use the parents against each other to get what they want. They are the master. They're the best politicians. And that's exactly what I did. If I wanted something and I knew my mom would give it to me, I'd go to my mom. But if I knew something, my dad would be more open to the suggestion, I would go to my dad. That's exactly what I did. So I got consent, I got this wedding date, I got everything set, and you know, I have always locked my ducks in a row, ascending or descending color coordinated. <laughs> and I don't like things to mess with it. So one of the things I did was when we got the wedding invitations uh, printed, we had to print them without a date. Because I was having two people come from two different parts of the world, my ex other brother-in-law worked in refineries. I had to find the perfect date that everybody could attend and there wouldn't be a conflict. So we had to handwrite the date in the last minute and send them out. And that's how much of a control freak I am. And these are barely me even having had any major interaction with the disease of alcoholism. This is just me Free alcohol is almost. <laughs> so, um, 
so uh, we married, we moved in together. Even before the marriage, there were signs. It's just because when he would say we're going to a party, my image was my history, and I would walk in, and there would be alcohol, like kegs of beer, and they weren't even a big party. It was just family, but they would have a keg of beer for like 15 guys. It'd be a keg of beer, and it's like, oh, this must be the U.S. version of party. So I, I had this built-in in my head or whatever culture that I've that excused everything away. Oh, it must be the American way. Oh, they must drink. Oh, that's okay. You know, I can go with the flow. I can be open-minded. I don't, I really didn't need the alcoholic to come up with excuses. Anything that would bother me, I had a built-in excuse for it already. I would justify it away. I would reason it away. I would just spin it on its head and just make it to be something else. And I would be okay with it. I would be okay with it. And I think the reason was that I loved him so much that if I, for a second, saw the red flags, I would have to leave. And I didn't want to leave. I couldn't leave. I was hooked. And I could not leave. So we married and, you know, disease of alcoholism does what disease of alcoholism does. It changes. It morphs. It doesn't stay the same. And, and he was a weekend drinker, which is another reason that disease of alcoholism can be cunning, baffling, and powerful. He was educated. Um, he had his bachelor degree. He worked for a very good company. He made a lot of money. We were very young. He bought his home when he was like 25 years old. I mean, we were sitting nice and pretty. But one of the things that I have to also tell you, how much I, I would ignore warning signs is that I had no list of the things that I wasn't going to live with. I had one thing. I will not live with drugs because I had an addicted um, cousin that ruined his life and my aunt's life and that was my only deal breaker. You do drugs, it's over. I walk out, I won't live with that. And you know, I know that in our program we don't talk about the alcoholic in the sense whether they have an addiction or not because they have to self-diagnose. But I, I can say that his drinking bothered me a lot and it had severe consequences. But one of the things was that he also did a lot of drugs before he and I hooked up. And uh, there were a couple of times that he would bring something home and it was like it, one of us goes either what you have in your hand or I go. And we would drive and his younger brother would be thrilled because he'd get a free gift <laughs> of drugs <laughs> of his choice. But that was the only thing that I had. That was my only deal breaker that I had for him. But he, on the other hand, and I love this about alcoholics, they are great at taking care of themselves. He had this list of requirements for me. And I can't remember half of them, but you know, even if any of them bothered me, it was like, oh, I can live with that. That's okay. That's okay. Not that big of a deal. The other, I guess, uh, the thing was I knew in order for my parents to consent, he had to convert to my religion. So I said, you know, we won't get a consent till you convert. So before I even went to my father and said, I want to marry him, um, he converted. So I had to say, okay, he's converted. <laughs> 
You've given him the seal of approval, now I want your approval. That's how much, I, you know, I can anticipate problems, I evaluate, and I problem solve. I'm a real good problem solver. So look, what is the problem? Let me see what the possible solutions could be and how can I get the result I want. So anyway, we moved in, he was drinking, and his drinking started escalating, and he had problems. He had problems, and I would say, oh, he's having problems at work. His boss doesn't understand him. You know, nobody understands him. And he would say, I mean, nobody understands him. And I would say, yeah, he just needs a lot of love and understanding. So... Um, but things got worse. Things got worse, and my, my nightmare was Friday night. I hated Friday nights. I just dreaded Friday nights. And, um, and I came up with another solution. Master's degree. So I really encouraged him to get his master's degree. And it really worked, because Wednesday nights he would go to university, and Saturday nights he would study. So I knocked out a day. You know, I wasn't drinking Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It was like Friday. Or Friday, Saturday, but Sunday he would have to, he had to study. So, and all those things that I do that partially work gives me the illusion that I can control this. And that's the hook of it. Because sometimes, some of the things that come up work, work for a period of time, but they eventually stop working. So, mm, then things got again worse, so I came up with the next solution. Overseas. He wanted money more than anything else. I said, if you work overseas, you could make so much money, you could retire by the time you're 35 or 40 tops. And you don't have to pay taxes, and this is really great, they give all this money, you can come back to U.S. once a year, they give you vacation money, and you really went for it. Well, just like these credit card things that they have, like at the 45% interest rate and stuff that is such a fine print you don't know I didn't say drinking is illegal in this country <laughs> and so he really liked the package it looked really good so so that's what we did we were we were ready to go we were ready to go to uh, overseas and one of the things that I had told him that I would never do is become a U.S. citizen. I said, you know, I don't ask you to change your citizenship. Don't expect me to change my citizenship. It will never happen. And uh, when we were going overseas, they, were, they said to, uh, <laughs> the host country would not allow me with my citizenship of the time. Inter trends. <laughs> Irony of life. And so they denied me entry. So my ex-husband had to go without me, and he was furious. <laughs> Only if you would just become a U.S. citizen. I said, sorry, off the table. It's not happening. It's just not happening. And so I was very upset. And I have to say, the first crack in my dream that I had created happened in those orientations that we had to go through. Because even though it was not my uh, place of birth, it was very close to culturally, and when the gentleman was talking about the culture and the religion, I just fell apart, and I couldn't stop crying. And my husband was baffled. He says, what's wrong? And I, for the first time, I told him the truth. I said, you don't know who I am. If you are ever interested to know who I am, listen to what he's telling you. 
because he didn't speak my first language. I spoke his. I was in, I was in his culture. He had never seen mine, so he was at a total disadvantage. I had misrepresented half of me. I had only given the half that was acceptable to him, but the other half that was a significant half, I had kept from him. But I didn't know that at the time. So anyway, what does an alcoholic do when they find out that they can't drink for a long period of time? They drink a lot. So that's exactly what he did. He drank a lot. And um, there were instances before this time that things were kind of off, like he was displeased and he had his pocket knife and he would throw his pocket knife and it would just miss me by a this much. And I would say, are you crazy? You could have blinded me. That's an insane thing to do. And, oh, I was just joking. And I excuse it away. But this time it was different. This time with, with the level of drinking that he was doing, he, I, I now know that he had the change of personality that they sometimes call uh, on the AA side the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He would have such a flip of personality. It was no longer my husband. Whoever was present in front of me was dangerous and serious dangerous. Um, right before he was going to go overseas, um, uh, we had this huge altercation that I was sure he was going to kill me and he was going to really be sorry later on, you know, but, but, it, but he was going to kill me. So that was the first time I ever called 911. And, and uh, we, thank God we were at my sister's house. We weren't in our home. And I would be running back and forth between the door and the phone and saying, but where are they? He's breaking the door, down the door and I can't hold the door any longer. And by the time the cops pulled up, was the exact time that he punched uh, the window out, and we were face to face for that split second. And that horrible face, that petrifying face that I was scared for my life, changed into the teddy bear in a split second. Oh, honey, open the door. And I had to look him in the eye and say, I'm scared of you, I can't open the door. But, you know, even though I knew my life was on the line, I still protected the alcoholic. When the cops asked me if there was physical violence, I said, no, he's leaving overseas. You know, I just, he's too drunk, and I just need him to leave the premises. And thank God we were not in our own home. They said, whose house is this? I said, my sister. And they told him, you have to leave. This is not your home. You cannot stay. And I have to tell you, that was the night that I believed so much that he was going to kill me that on the newspaper of the day, my first language, I wrote a note to my brother and sister that should I be found dead, he had killed me. And that's how much I believed that that was going to happen. Um, and I was just laying, I was just hysterical. I was just beside myself. And I, I looked up, I don't know why, I looked up in the back of a phone book and there was numbers. And I don't know who I called, but there was something about alcoholism. And I called a number, and I talked to a woman, and she listened to me, and she said, Honey, you need Al-Anon. I had heard of AA. I had never heard of Al-Anon. And she gave me a number. That was in October, actually, years ago, but that was in October. So my husband came. I, the reason I, did, I protected him is that if the host country had found out that he was drinking, he would have not been allowed to go. He would have lost his job. 
So even when my life is on the line, I will protect the alcoholic's job. If that's not insane, I don't know what is. When they talk about that we are insane too, I know what that means. So anyway, he make a long story short, he left in, in October and I wasn't functioning anymore. You know, I was, I was sleeping haphazardly, I was up all night, I was crying all the time. I don't know if I was eating properly. I just was beside myself. I couldn't do it anymore. And, and in January, about three months later, I think my sister came for her because my sister was in the host country. That's how, how I knew about this job and this opportunity. My sister came from overseas and we were in the, in, sitting in the car. My brother-in-law was pumping gas and there was a Budweiser truck that pulled in and I started shaking. And I looked at my sister. I said, there's something wrong with me. Normal people don't shake at the sight of a Budweiser truck. <laughs> and um, and when she went back overseas that January, I called and I found the, the number of a meeting um, and the address of a meeting and with a, with a girl that I knew that I hope finds seats in this I don't know room one day. We went to my first meeting. I couldn't go by myself. And I sat and uh, I sat around. We would sit sit around the table, and uh, they talked. I cried. I cried for nine straight months. There was always a Kleenex in front of me. They talk. I cried. I talk. I cried. I was just beside myself. My life was over. Life was not worth living. In the worst scenario, I used to tell my ex-husband, "You know, I can't live with you. I can't live without you." And he would give me these options. I said, your options that you're giving me is like, do I want my right arm chopped off or do I want my left arm chopped off? The options you're giving me are not livable. And I just didn't know what to do. Now, that was hell. I know what hell is. I've lived it. I know the address. It's 1379 Penny Gent Drive in Channelview, <laughs> Texas. Don't ask for a zip code. I'm not that good. I don't have that good of a memory. But it was, it was hell. It was absolute hell. To love the person that can kill you is hell. To be afraid of the person, the love of your life, the man you will, you know, the man that there is no man that can just stand next to. And, and that's the guy that can kill you. And, and you can't save it. And you don't know what to do. And that was hell. So I went to my first Al-Anon meeting, and I don't know why I went back. I think it was desperation. So if you are desperate, I'm very happy for you, because that, that is the beginning of being willing. Be, being absolutely beside yourself desperate that life isn't worth living anymore, then maybe Al-Anon will have an opportunity to seep in. And all it takes is to go to meetings. I asked three people to be my sponsor. The first said, honey, I sponsor too many people, and you need a lot more attention than I have to give. God bless her for being honest with me. The second person said, honey, I'm a double winner. You really need an Al-Anon person. And God bless her. She had enough humility and honesty to be honest with me. She shared so brilliantly in meetings. I never knew she was a double winner till I asked her to be my sponsor. And she still directed me to go further. The third person I asked to be my sponsor was June W. Um, she is 
the angel that my higher power put on this earth. She was the perfect fit for me. And she's the reason I stand before you today because I believe that without Alanon, I would not be alive, honestly. It is not the fact that my life has changed. It's, it's not the fact that I have grown to know who I am by doing a fourth step and looking back. It's none of those things. It's just the fact that the road I was going, I was dying a day at a time. I was just dying. I wasn't living. I didn't know what living meant. I really didn't. I didn't. I, uh, let's put it this way. I didn't know how to breathe. I would call June and I would be hyperventilating, not know what's going on. And she'd say, Mojde, you're not breathing. I said, what do you mean you're not breathing? And she'd say, Mojde, I'm going to tell you how to breathe, and this is what I want you to do. I want you to breathe in seven counts. I want you to hold it seven counts, and I want you to breathe out seven counts. Do you know I still do that today? There are times when crises happen that I find myself not breathing and I remember June's words, Musa, you're not breathing. Musa, breathe. And there are times I can't do seven because that's how much pressure I'm under, and I have to do three. I breathe in three counts, I hold three counts, and I breathe out three counts. And my body automatically, by the guidance of the actions I'm taking, my body will relax. And what I could not live with, I can breathe through for one brief moment. You know, the hardest things I have done hasn't been before program, has been since program. I have to tell you. You know, I am not one of those stories that you're going to hear that, you know, the husband got sober and we have this lovely life and we have children and they've grown. None of that. I don't have a husband. I don't have children. And I live with my mom, brother, and sister. Believe me, it's an interesting life. <laughs> wouldn't recommend it but it's an interesting life <laughs> but I have to tell you that in this program I have learned before program when they would say Musha what do you want to do I said oh this is okay I can say his name Matthew loves this 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 and they would say Musha we didn't ask what Matthew wanted we're asking you what you wanted and before long, within maybe nine months of the program, I realized I didn't know what my favorite color was. I didn't know what food I liked. I didn't know where I wanted to go. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And, but I could tell you where Matthew wanted to retire. I knew his hopes and dreams and ambitions. I knew his favorite color. And, and it was like I didn't have a sense of self at all. And it has taken years for me to realize. My favorite colors are red, blue, Purple, which is a combination of red and blue. <laughs> Turquoise. And all the colors in the rainbow and sunset. I just love color. When I first came to the program, after nine months, I went to my closet. I was shocked. Everything I had was black and white. Was it the black, white, or black and white? And I thought, my God, this is my thinking. All or nothing. Black or white. Happy dead. There is nothing in between. <laughs> and I have to tell you, even today, when I go to shop for clothes, I have to tell myself, remember color. Remember color. Because, you know, I learned from June, bring the body and the mind will follow. And I've learned from June that 
It takes time to get better. She used to say, Moshe, you can be too well for this program, but you can never be too sick for this program. And she used to say, some of us are sicker than others. You are one of those. (laughs) Don't feel bad. So was I. And I looked at her example and I said, if she can get better, then so can I. I kind of am a very visual person. Stories really help me not just to recall them, to pull me through hard times. And one of the, the things I remember is that I felt lost in a dark wood. It was fog, and I couldn't find my way, and June's voice was like an echo. I didn't know where it was coming from quite, but I would just follow the voice to find my way out of the woods. You know, and, and I need to remember that, that I get sick and we get better. Nowhere in our literature do I see I. It's always we. And the we happens when it's me and another fellow program person sitting together. And I really had a problem with the higher power. I had fired mine. It had failed. When I was 18 years old, I said, you know, if this is your idea of what bliss is, you can keep it. I'll find my own. And I fired my higher power. And I remember when I first started working with June, and June would say, you know, she would talk about the powerless, the first step, and then she was, came to believe that a power greater than us could restore us to sanity. And, and I had to tell her how I felt about the God of anybody's understanding and where I think it, it did it. And, and she, would, she would say to me, Moshe, the higher power can be a doorknob. It just has to be something outside you. The higher power was for me, for the longest time, the experience, strength, and hope of the group was greater than mine. They had lived through more life circumstances. They had more solutions than me. Therefore, the higher power was the group. And gradually, I evolved, and I started having a relationship with the higher power, and I would talk to her how difficult it was for me. And she would say, all you need is the size of a mustard seed, because that's the smallest seed ever, you know, in nature. And that's as much hope and faith that you need is a mustard seed. And so, it's a, and, and I pretend it was like, you know, act as if, you know, pretend that you have a higher power. I did all these crazy things. I don't know what, I was desperate. Desperation is the best friend that I can ever have. And knowing it all is my worst friend. It's my enemy. If I think I know it, I'm in trouble. Every time in my life, I've had the inkling that I've known something. I have to be careful. It's almost like approach with caution. (laughs) I know it, approach with caution. And one of the things that June used to tell me was, things aren't what they seem to be. More will be revealed. So um, so I grew to have a higher power, and it's evolved, and it's changed, and I had a faith, and, and it didn't work for me about 10 years ago, um, and I got really, really sick, and I wouldn't get better, and my doctor said, no antibiotic is working on you, and, and I love my doctor enough to tell him the truth. I said, I'm having a problem with my higher power, and if this doesn't resolve, I won't get better, and so he directed for me to read a book. And um, I read, and I went to the library to get the book. It 
And when I turned around, I saw another book, and I almost left the library, and something said, go back. You're supposed to read that book, too. So I read both books, and that was the beginning of a different spiritual experience. I changed faith. And this, I announced it to my family. I said, I'm no longer blah, blah, blah. I, this is what I believe. And thank God my parents were open to it, and they were, you know, the, they're kind of funny now. They're, the older I get, the more open-minded they get. It's kind of funny. I don't know which one of us is changing sometimes. Um, but, but I, I, you know, I have never been more at peace. And the opportunity to, to take a risk and go out of my faith, which, because in the faith I was raised in, it is blasphemy to change. It is a non-forgivable sin. And, and it wasn't for, if it wasn't for Alan, I wouldn't have had that courage to question what is not right, what, this is not right for me. What is right for me? Because that's what this program has taught me. Take what you like and leave the rest. One day at a time and things will change. And I'm finding, and I ask my higher power. I was on the vision. I said, God, I want to know you. Reveal yourself. I am in trouble like I've never been in trouble. I am in such trouble. I have been in trouble in program many times over. You know, just because I have a program doesn't mean I won't be in trouble. Doesn't make I don't have to make amends. Make a mess of things. I do all those things. <laughs> I, and you know, I, I did my fourth step the most non-traditional way. It was indexed form. I had a fear of pen and paper like you've never seen before. I see a pen and paper and I would just come off. And my sponsor said, you know, Moshe, you've done the one, two, three, one, two, three, it won't get better. You, in order for you know, to know where you're going, you have to know where you are. And you, in order to know where you are, you have to do a fourth step. You said, she would say, you do one, two, three, his fourth. One, two, three, his fourth. When are you going to do yours? <laughs> and and I and I had to and I had to tell her the truth. I have a fear. I, every time I take a piece of paper, I hyperventilate. I can't breathe and I can't go on. And she said, "Do whatever you can." And so I did an index form, and I wrote topics, and I did it orally. And you know what? I'm really really grateful today that I had the crappiest first fourth ever because. <laughs> I can't judge anybody else's fourth step. And I can tell you, no matter how badly a fourth step is done, it's a beginning, not an end. And all, all I have to do is be willing and do the best I can, and more will be revealed. Um, for the longest time, I thought, of, I thought I was a fake and a fraud because my fourth step was so unorthodox and weird, just like I am. And... Um, and uh, and I've come to terms with that. I've owned it finally. That was my first step, as badly as it was done. And, you know, I did not divorce the alcoholic. He filed for the divorce. Everybody told me, Moshe, the one that files for the divorce would be least hurt. And it wasn't the right thing for me. I couldn't. I did this program slowly. The first, I did not start with the steps. I'm not that smart. I am smart. That's not a true statement. I wasn't that together to be able to do from the steps. I started from the slogans and the do's and don'ts. It had to be short. When I would start the sentence, like we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our life had become unmanageable. By the time I would get to the unmanageable, I would forget how it started. 
It was useless to me. But let go and let God live and let live. Keep it simple, one day at a time. It was short enough for my memory to contain and to help me through the hard times. And I have to tell you, when things get hard, I'll go back to those again. I go breathe, slogans, do's and don'ts, keep your mouth shut. I guess my favorite thing to do now is to keep my mouth shut with everybody but my sponsor. <laughs> so I was teasing her because we meet once a week since I live with family. I don't want to talk from the house because I don't want my issues to hurt anybody's feelings. It's not, I don't want to harm them. I just have to deal with my own stuff. So I kind of was teasing her. I said, the whole week I'm doing this. I put my finger on my left and I was kind of like my lips kind of my face was, and I'm holding it, and so, and then I said, by Sunday when I see you, if I don't tell you, I'm going to explode. And that's the truth. The truth is, even early on with my ex-husband, June would say to me, you don't tell Matthew anything. Whatever feelings or opinions you have comes to me. You take your solutions, or what he needs to know to him. The rest is, you don't take it to him. I had the biggest problem of my mouth being attached to the doorknob. The poor man couldn't come in and put down his briefcase. I'd drag him to the bedroom, sit him on the bed, sit on him so he couldn't get in, go anywhere. And Monday night, he was going to hear exactly what had happened that weekend because, you know, we're going to communicate. <laughs> I'm going to talk, you're going to listen, you're going to see the error of your ways, and you're going to change, and we're going to fix this because you're getting your master's degree. And it does not make sense for a person that takes food to work and takes raisins. He ate raisins for snack. I mean, oxymoron. Who would take care of their body five days a week and then destroy that same body two days? And that was my argument. It was a valid argument. He would agree. He would know what he had. We had communicated, and I expected change. It may have worked. Every once in a while, one weekend, he would take her. And I didn't tell him, don't drink. I said, pick a number. Twelve beers. Eighteen, I don't care. Just stick to it. Don't go for the beer run. Don't, 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 just, don't do this extra. I was willing to negotiate. I'm a good politician. An honest one. I don't lie. I make color. But I don't lie. It didn't work. No matter what I would do, this, the disease of alcoholism is cunning, baffling, and powerful. It, June used to tell me, Moshe, if you go to meetings, stay close to your higher power. Use your sponsor. Use your sponsor, not just have one. Use your sponsor. Do everything in your power. The best you can do is to not be taken by the alcoholic. You will never win at this game. You will always lose. And I finally listened to someone other than my own voice. I finally listened. And she, and, and she told me to go to open AA meetings. I hated them. Why would I? It's of my life is not what I want it to be. And, and I finally went. I went to open AA meetings. And I have to tell you, I love alcoholics. For some time, I was annoyed that I was an Al-Anon because I find us slightly boring. I think they are a little bit more colorful. Maybe that's why I love alcoholics. They're such an attractive species. <laughs> they really are. They are charismatic. They're weird. I mean, I'm boring. Compare to them, I'm boring. I love them. And, you know, and I heard from them what my ex-husband couldn't tell me. 
is, is that he's sick. I finally heard from a recovering alcoholic that he hated his disease. I thought he loved his disease. I thought he was thrilled. Honestly. I thought he was happy. I couldn't wrap my mind around it that he didn't have a choice. I couldn't wrap my mind around the fact that he never had a choice. From his first drink when he was 15 years old, his brother told me what he did. He did not drink like a normal human being. He never drank like a normal human being. God bless him. I have to tell you, when he filed for divorce, it, I think it shocked him that I, that I let it go through. And that was because of this program. I learned not to create a crisis, but not to prevent a crisis if it's in the natural course of events. I have to say that beyond meetings and sponsorship, I'm a true believer in Al-Anon approved literature. They have saved my life many, many times over. And I have to say uh, uh, that even today, it is sometimes hard for me to pick up a piece of literature and read, but it doesn't matter. I can open any page and it would be the perfect page. Um, Sorry for being all scattered. I'm usually not this scattered brain. I guess it's just the, the events of this past couple of years have been really, really challenging for me. Um, so anyway, he filed for divorce. I let the divorce go through. Uh, you know, and the last time we ever met, he says, "Look me in the eye and tell me you don't love me." And I looked him in the eye and I said, "I love you. You're the love of my life." The last person I think about before I die will be you. I'm not willing to be your wife anymore. And that's what this program did for me. I believe that Al-Anon did a Siamese separation. We were joined at the hips. And Al-Anon taught me where he ended and I began. That he has the right to drink himself to death. And I have the right to be happy, joyous, and free if I choose to. And you know, my higher power is the best example of loving detachment. He has never interfered. And the only reason I use he is because English language doesn't have a third person non-gender. If there was one, I'd use that one. <laughs> but the only reason I use, the, I use you know, he doesn't interfere in my life, the only time my higher power has interfered in my life was when he nearly killed me. And I believe that that is even true today, is that my higher power would allow me to make any choice I choose as long as it does not interfere with his ultimate will. So I always say I have 49% and he has 51 He has the veto power. I can do whatever I want to. He will let me make all the stupid decisions I could possibly wish for. But if it is against his will, he will veto. But if I want to marry a dumb jerk, he'll let me. <laughs> and I have to tell you, the, I am really, really grateful for the, for the people. How much time do I have? Um, about 20 minutes. Okay. Ooh, I have a little bit more time. I can tell you what happened. <laughs> so I let the divorce go through. He was shocked. And I have to tell you, at the time, I didn't have health care. I had dislocated my knee the second time. I was on crutches. And I didn't have health care. 
And June had taught me love is an action, not a word. And when we divorced, he didn't even, we were married, he did not have health care for me. And I couldn't get my knee taken care of. So I referred to the highest doctor possible, which is my higher power. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll give you my knee to heal. There's nothing I can do about this. I can't get it taken care of. But I have to tell you, I've had to also alter a lot of um, things. I can't do a lot of things that I used to do. I still haven't had my knee taken care of. It's been almost 20 years. Uh, I had torn all the ligaments and tendons. <laughs> it was not great. <laughs> but that was me, you know, being self-righteous and smarty pants. I went dancing. And I didn't listen to my knee. I dislocated it when I was 16. I popped it out very easily, and I, I just have a problem with my knees. So I was doing Charleston, and I got a little bit too enthusiastic, and I ignored it. And I had to pay the consequence. And I think that's what I'm learning over and over again, that all life is is choices and consequences, and which consequences am I willing to live with? June never told me what to do or what not to do. She didn't tell me to stay or go. The only thing that Alanon at that because we didn't have really that much literature about physical violence yet, the only thing they would say to me after the meeting was keep a spare key and money in a safe place outside so if your life is in danger you can leave. The only thing it says is that we don't, you don't have to accept physical violence, but we didn't have that much literature to address it at the time. And I learned from June um, that not to get between the alcoholic and the alcohol. And, you know, uh, two things happened. I kept my mouth shut, and I also told my ex-husband, if you ever raise a hand on me again, one phone call to my brother and brother-in-law, and they will beat the living jibbies out of you. <laughs> I wasn't going to call the cops. I wasn't going to wait that long. <laughs> and, you know, he never raised a hand on me again. But I think the biggest thing in the physical violence for it to cease was also the fact that I no longer came between him and drinking. And when I would get so hurt, June used to tell me, oh, I had a hard time with letting go. June used to tell me the story, How They Catch Monkeys. It's one of my favorite stories. It's a true story, actually. It's not a story. It's a true fact. The, re the way they catch monkeys in the, uh, in the jungle is that they put a piece of fruit in a tight neck bottle in the woods, and they leave. The monkey reaches in and grabs the fruit but can't, the, the hand and the fruit is too big. It can't come out of the neck. The monkey, all he has to do is let go of the fruit, and he can't take his hand out, but he won't. He'll sit there holding on to the fruit, and he'll sit there till they come and catch him. And you, Junie would tell me, Moja, all you have to do is let go of the fruit. And I learned how to detach by that story. I learned that, it, you know, it, I kept thinking, I have to fix this or I can't live. All I had to do was let this go and then live. Just live my life. And it wasn't that I was divorcing him because I was in the program for 19 months before he filed for divorce. And 
And I had a hard time making decisions, and June would say, when you get up in the morning, you ask yourself, do I want to be in this marriage, or do I want to go? And whatever the answer is, I answer it, and then I don't ask that question anymore. So if it is that I don't want to divorce him, done deal. Go live your life. And every time I asked myself the question, the answer was, no, I don't want to live leave this marriage and the other thing was if in doubt don't she used to say are you you see a fire you see a crisis are you sure this bucket of clear liquid is water and not oil or gas are you sure you won't make matters worse if in doubt don't go to a meeting pray about it just wait and I still live by those principles and I think that's why I love keeping my mouth shut, especially with my family, which is because nobody in my family, in, in, you know, one person is around the program, in my opinion, but that's me taking her inventory. But nobody officially is in program in my family. I'm the only one. I don't hide it, but I'm very careful not to be a poster child for Al-Anon either. Um, my, my literature is where it is. I don't lay it around for anyone. It's for me, they, you know, not to say I haven't told my niece, you know, you're welcome to read any of them anytime you wish. I even showed her how the index works, but beyond that, I leave it alone. Uh, so anyway, um, uh, he left, and I was left with me, and I decided that, you know, I was my, my uh, uh, this is the way I came to the program, with somebody's daughter, somebody's sister, somebody's wife, somebody's aunt. But I didn't know who much there was. And I decided to stay in Texas after I divorced for a while because I needed to figure out who I was. And I decided every year that I would make a decision on the anniversary of my divorce if I wanted to stay single one more year. And I did that. And it's been years and years. <laughs> I really like being single. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot more fun. I'm sorry. I love guys. Not that I have anything against against guys it's just I can do what I want when I want I don't have to negotiate schedules or anything I can I don't have to get okay from anyone I don't have to think about anyone I don't have to consider anyone which is a blessing in my culture we always have to navigate you know who's going to be offended and oh, all these crazy things it's not fun to be Middle Eastern <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it personally but <laughs> It, it, it's a rich culture, but it can also be very challenging at times. So anyway, um, I stayed in Texas for three more years, and I came for a visit with my family in California, and I decided that what was true in that um, orientation, which is only half of me my ex-husband knew, it was still true because I only knew half of me. And I decided that it was time for me to leave Texas and come back to a uh, to a place that more of my culture is present and for me to get to know that part of me also. Kind of integrate, meet, you know, introduce the two motions together and have them make peace. So I moved to California. I also decided that my niece was like 12 years old and, uh, you know, anything can be replaced. That's what I've learned. You know, I can lose a house or lose things. The only thing that cannot be replaced is time. This day when gone, I will not get it back. And I realized that I wasn't willing to lose time with my niece anymore. She had grown up overseas till the age nine, 
and this was my opportunity to reconnect with my niece because you know uh, if I was going to adopt a child she would have been it so in, in a hard way she is my daughter I always tell, tease my sister I said you know I really cheated you you gave birth to my child <laughs> she's really really mine in, in many ways um, so I decided to come to California and I'm really really gr- grateful because as hard as it was when I left Texas I was crying like I was crying bitter tears and I never forget I was sitting in the car of one of my um, mentors he was an AA gentleman Ron and may he always be happy joyous and free and he says why are you crying much I said this is this is the hardest thing I've ever had to do I'm leaving you guys. And, and he looked at me and said, Moshe, how long have you been here? And I told him how many years. How long have you been in the program? And I told him how long. I said, how would you feel about yourself if after this time when you were leaving, you weren't going to miss anyone, nobody was going to miss you? And, and that's the richness of life for me. You know, I have people that I love and adore in Texas. Mm, and I was really scared to come to California and how are you guys going to work this program and all that. You know, the meetings in Texas are only an hour. They read two pieces of literature, open, you know, just go for it. And I come here and the meetings are hour and a half and you take a break and you have coffee. Oh, my God, you're so long. They have timers. God, too many things to coordinate. <laughs> and and I, uh, adjustment. I had to adjust one more time. And, uh, and it's kind of funny. My favorite meeting in Texas was El Segundo Wednesday night, and my favorite meeting in L.A. is Wednesday night Culver City. Same day. Not much of a difference. Um, and I have to tell you, I love the ladies in my life. I love them beyond anything. Um, but, you know, um, they are my backbone. You know, every time I go overseas, it's, it's, it's a very traumatic experience for me. They all get scared for me. We all, you know, meet either individually or as a group. Every person will give me something to carry me through because when I'm overseas taking my mom home, I won't have meetings. And so everybody gives me something. You know, my sponsor gives me the sayings that another Al-Anon sister has given her. They're like fortune cookie, but they're Al-Anon stuff, so I take that. And then another Al-Anon sister gave me a journal, which was perfect. It was small size, and believe me, I wrote every day. And so everybody gave me something. And and, and I when I said, we have a home back, back over there. So I have my own bedroom, and I and I set everything around me. So at night, when life is overwhelming, I'll look at my 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 nightstand and I say, "Remember where you're coming from, and all the people that love you, and they know who you are." You know, my family doesn't really know who I am. They see me as they see me, and I don't have to prove them right or wrong. They can have their opinion. It's okay. We don't have to argue about it. But I know who I am, and the people that are important know who I am. My sponsor and my Al-Anon sisters know who I am. When I want to get a reality check, I will not go to my family of origin. I'll go to my Al-Anon sponsor. And I give her the circumstances, and I, and I do a reality check. Because one of the most important things I learned after I did my fourth, fourth step the first time was that my ex-husband didn't overtly lie about anything. He didn't hide anything. You know, he was a zebra. I just wanted a horse. <laughs> but the problem was, I have this great imagination that I would paint him. I would make a horse out of him and say, you are a horse. 
and he'd go into the water and the stripes would come out. You say, no, horsey, horsey, and I'd go and paint. You know, he didn't lie. I did. And I think that was the beauty of this program, that it has nothing to do with the alcoholic, because he has to do what he has to do. God bless him. What am I doing to make my life unmanageable? What am I doing that makes my life a living hell? What is it that I can change? And I used to go to June and say, He doesn't love me. Why would he? And she would say, If Matthew had cancer and he was in the hospital and he had tubes in and out of him and he was on painkiller, would you expect for him to understand you to go and say you had a bad day at work? And I needed those stories. I needed to realize that I don't understand what the alcoholic is living with. And I wanted to have these conversations. He's smart. And she would say, whenever you're talking to Matthew, I want you to see this neon light flashing on his forehead, blinking at you. Because I kept wanting him to not be sick. I want what I want the way I want, color coordinated, ascending and descending, don't mess with my picture. It looks good. We just need a frame. We can hang it up, enjoy it together. But, you know, it doesn't work. Alcoholics love to mess with my ducks. They just want them swimming, flying, being all over the place. They don't like order. I love their picture. I just want mine too. I like it when I go and their ducks are flying and giving me all these pictorials and stuff. It's just I can't live with that for more than a movie, period, two hours. I don't want my life to be that. I can't live my life that way. I love control way too much. I think control should be a good thing. (laughs) It makes life manageable. But it really, really doesn't. I have learned in this program that I've had many crises come and go. I've had, mom had a stroke, mom had a TIA, then she had a stroke in the past three years, so she's become more and more dependent on me. And believe me, I still want my mom to have a drink and chill out. I've given her a drink. It doesn't work. It gives her a headache. It's so disappointing. <laughs> uh, believe me, I'd rather have an alcoholic any day of the week than an untreated, nagging, complaining, dissatisfied Al-Anon. <laughs> oh, my God. If she would only pass out. <laughs> and I have to tell myself, have compassion for your mom. You don't understand her. She will never change. She's 80 plus years old. You have a program. She doesn't. You have a program. She doesn't. Keep your mouth shut. Don't say anything you're going to regret. Don't leave the house angry with her. You may not see her again. You know, time is precious. Time is the only thing I will never have again. So mom had another health thing going on this week. Mom had a health thing going on five months ago. She's getting older, and she could say, I don't understand. I said, Mom, we've had plumbing problems in our bathroom, and they've had to work on it twice last year. You're 80 years old. You're having plumbing problems in your legs. You know, she's bleeding her legs. She's having 
weird stuff happening in her leg because of the the stroke. They're putting her on blood thinners, so she's having health issues. She's just having health issues, and and I know she's scared. I know she's scared, and I've learned in this program enough detachment to know when it's not me. I can see her being scared, and I can see that I'm the closest one, and I can see that I'm getting the brunt of it. If I have made enough meetings, I can let it go. I react in a heartbeat if I've missed meetings. You know, I, I truly believe that this is a day-at-a-time program, and I get out of it exactly what I put into it. And and I was talking to my sponsor this past Sunday. I said, it's amazing. I haven't had major slips, even though I've missed two weeks of meetings. And then I looked and I said, but you know what? It's not that I didn't want to go to meetings. I had every intention. It's just that health crisis come up, and I have to stay home and take care of her. And I said, you know what? I think my higher power is carrying me through all this stuff because he knows I'm willing. I want to go. It's just mom needs me. I have to stay. There is nobody else. She doesn't speak English. I'm her history. She had an emergency, and I told the emergency people, do you want me in the ambulance or in the you know fire thingy? They said, no, nobody's allowed. And then she came back. She says, uh, we take that back. We need you. <laughs> so I have to give, give the history. I know it by heart. I know all her meds. I know everything's happened. I know the dates, places, times. You know, being a caretaker and being controlling pays off. I can be a good caretaker. I can, I can take care of mom. I can really do that well. The challenge is, how do I take care of myself as well? And that's where my program comes in, even today. And so, when mom had her thing, I kept in touch with my sponsor and Colleen. I said, okay, emergency, plan B. If there should come a possibility that mom needs me here, I have my sponsor or my Al-Anon sister will fill in for me, but let's just play and see what happens. I'm learning this program also that... I can let go of what may come tomorrow and stay in today and take care of what is in front of me and just have enough faith, just enough, that mustard seed, that things are going to work out exactly the way they're supposed to. Now, let me tell you, I'd missed two weeks of meetings and I was itching for this convention. Believe me, I wasn't itching to talk, but I was itching for this conversation. I was looking forward to it. I was going to have time with my Al-Anon sisters and my butterfly. And you know what? AAs have pigeons, the people they sponsor. We have butterflies, the people we sponsor. So, you know, my butterfly was going to be here, and I was really looking forward to it. And I had to keep telling myself, don't be angry and resentful. Don't be angry and resentful. You're making a choice. You are making a choice because you can't live with the other choice, with the consequences of other choice. You know, my sister, who my sister is, and I have learned not to, to look at what my sister and brother do. I, I did that even before program. I never forget, I was 18 years old, and I kind of saw ourselves, the three siblings, and our parents said, my brother wanted me to go home so he wouldn't have to worry about mom and dad being alone. And I thought to myself, you have had your degree. It's my turn to get my education. If he feels that uncomfortable about mom and dad being alone, let him go home. And I stayed. Now, life took another turn, but I stayed. And I remember when the time came around, 
and I was in the program and that same scenario, looking at my siblings and my mom and dad me in the middle and it's gone like, you do it, no, you do it, no, you do it, why should I do it, you do it. And I thought, you know what, you can't look at them. You can't look at your siblings. These are your parents. What will you be able to live with? What are you going to be your choices? These are your parents. And I decided that day that I wasn't going to look at what my brother and sister were going to do. I was only going to look at what I was willing and not willing to live with. And I decided that I was going to be there for my parents. I took care of my dad till he passed away. And, um, and I'm taking care of mom. You know, she's not the perfect mom. If I was going to be given a choice of mother, she wouldn't have been the one I would have picked. I would have picked my dad, but I would have never picked my mom. I would have picked a much cooler mom that wasn't into housekeeping. I would have picked a mom that was street smart and just into arts and she just wants to cook and clean and cook and clean. Boring. It's just not me. I do it. I take her. I do it. And I say, she's 80 years old. You're going to regret. She's 80 years old. You're going to regret. And I, that's the, my, my motto is don't have regrets. I don't regret having stayed with my ex-husband. I don't regret him filing for the divorce. Um, I, have, I can live with all my choices. I may not be able to live with all my choices before the program, but I can live with 90% of my choices after the program because believe you me, I can do some doozies after the program. <laughs> One of the things that June used to say when we were talking about, you know, anonymity is that, you know, she, I, lo- I love June. I mean, I, I have two other sponsors since, Frances. She was wonderful. I have to tell you, my current sponsor is Monet, and she has wings in heaven and on earth because she puts up with me. And she's so patient. She listens to my stuff. But one of the things that June you, you would tell me is that, you know, Muja, when he talks about anonymity, it's not trying to protect you. It's trying to protect the program. Because when you act like a fool, people won't say, see, Al-Anon doesn't work. Now, that's a different perspective, isn't it? Because I've seen many people, you know, that flaunt their program and then they behave badly and really behave. They really are not a program of attraction then. So, you know, and she would put things very plainly for me. She'd, and it, I love the program in Texas in some ways because they used to tell me my favorite sayings now, which wasn't then, was take the cotton out of your ears and stuff it in your mouth. God gave you two ears and one mouth so you may listen twice as long as you talk. And I didn't like those things. And I would go and complain to June, and June would say, I said, were you talking too long? They didn't have a timer. <laughs> but, you know, my time is almost up, and I don't want to leave without saying that I am ever so grateful that I don't know why Kathy loves me so much. She does. <laughs> I am so grateful that Kathy months and months ago asked me to do, to come and share with you guys today and I would not have known how badly I would need it in this week. This has been a godsend to me and and I want to thank Colleen because of my crazy life. She did things on the phone so I wouldn't have to do it by internet and she had, she, we've talked and texted and She's just 
Awesome. And I just have to say also to my Al-Anon sisters and friends and sponsor, thank you so much, guys, for for being excited for me and always cheering me on and always thinking better of me than I think of myself. And I have to tell you, you know, they used to always say, um, uh, we'll love you till you can love yourself. And I can't say I quite love myself. But I can honestly say I'm not quite mad at myself as I used to be. And I'm very aware when I'm unduly critical or unkind to myself. I haven't gotten to the point of loving myself. I don't know if I'll ever get there. But I, I cannot uh, tell you what a blessing. What a blessing. In this, I have gained so much. I only lost a, a husband. But I gained a life back. I know what my... I love library. I love learning. I enjoy life. My family can be miserable. I know I'm not. When I go to the bedroom and I close the door, I say, I'm very sorry my mom is miserable. Thank God I'm not. My mom is unhappy, but I'm not. And that separation, I'm so grateful that you guys allow me to have a life, to grow up, to have fun, to have hobbies, to learn a different language other than English and to believe in the, that the impossible may be possible. And I'm going to finish with my favorite, favorite saying. It's not approved, but it was on a, on a podium. Um, they had a podium in our meeting. I don't know why in an Al-Anon meeting they had a podium. But, um, and the poster said, expect a miracle. And I think that has always been my favorite non-Al-Anon approved slogan, expect a miracle, and you, and you guys, every one of you is a miracle to me, and and every time I have a doubt, all you have to do, all I have to do is look at you and, and be reminded that, that the impossible is possible. It may just take a different form than I expected. So thank you very much for coming and showing up.